Today from the Global Lane, defending religious freedom around the world. Less of a priority for the USA. Without the United States as an active superpower promoting democratic values, Christians and other people persecuted for their faith are going to suffer. Global child trafficking from orphanages. Traffickers target children in orphanages into other exploitive environments, whether that is child labor or sexual exploitation. Biden's vaccine mandates and sharing science with the U.S. Supreme Court. We wanted to update the justices on what's actually happening right now, uh, which we think completely negates the logic of these vaccine mandates. Pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Stopping voter suppression or federal power grab. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Religious freedom around the world. Just how committed is the United States to exposing violations of this basic God-given right and doing something about it? Well, January 16th is National Religious Freedom Day. Our next guest is using the occasion to speak out. Hedya Miramati is a former Muslim who heads up Resurrect Ministry. She insists the Biden administration is a big obstacle, not an advocate for persecuted Christians and religious freedom. What do you see as being the biggest obstacle to religious freedom from this administration? First of all, thank you for having me and thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. International religious freedom has taken prominence in our country and in our foreign policy since we established the Office of International Religious Freedom back in 1998. So it's enjoyed bipartisan support, but has basically come to prominence uh, more or less so in certain administrations. So it is the it is the signaling to the rest of the world that we place a very high significance on religious freedom and religious liberty, not only of Christians, but also of other faith groups. And most importantly, under the previous administration, our greatest proponent of religious freedom was Secretary Pompeo, who put forth his Christian identity front and center and gained international notoriety and attention and respect from world leaders for letting the world know that United States would stand up for persecuted Christians and people that were being persecuted based on their faith wherever in the world they existed, whatever faith they practiced. Unfortunately, in this administration and the office head of religious freedom has signaled this, that this administration was going to balance foreign policy interests and balance human rights with religious freedom. So it wasn't going to take the prominence that it did under the previous administration. And as a consequence, Christians and other people persecuted for their faith are going to suffer. Well, and we know about that in Nigeria and Afghanistan. Yes. In Afghanistan, we know a lot of secret Christians there left when the Taliban took over, but some remain behind. And knowing what you know about radical Islam, what are they facing? What can you tell us about those who are still there? I mean, it, it's horrific. The, the, the main uh, problem in Islamic countries, like, for example, myself, I can't travel to probably about 32 countries because I first entered those countries as a Muslim, is to leave Islam makes you a murtad, makes you an apostate, which is subject to death by most penal codes in Muslim countries and especially Afghanistan. So it's not just wanting to be Christians, which is different than Islam, but it's leaving Islam to become a Christian. And so they're marked by death wherever they go. It's, it's really a tragedy that we would leave not only Americans behind, but Afghan Christians behind without alternatives. And as Glenn Beck reported, that they are purposely hindering 
the evacuation of Christians to other countries that are willing to take them and that are neighboring countries that are willing to take these refugees and other displaced uh, Afghan Christians, but the State Department is, is basically preventing that evacuation or making it dipl diplomatically more difficult. In places like neighboring Pakistan. Exactly. I know Christian, Christians of Farabati is now Pakistan's longest serving blasphemy convict. Earlier this month, a judge sentenced him to death and he's accused of sending blasphemous text messages about Mohammed's mother, yet his defenders say the messages were discovered on a phone that wasn't even his. Bhatti is illiterate. So why do cases like this keep happening? What can be done about this uh, draconian blasphemy law in Pakistan and other Muslim countries like, say, Egypt? See, here's the problem. Without the United States as a major superpower, and I actually wrote about this in the terms of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, without the United States as an active superpower promoting democratic values, first and foremost, religious freedom and the protection of religious liberty, then all the other countries around us, and especially those that are more aggressive, end up taking up policies without fear of reprisal from the United States. So in that article that I wrote, I also pointed out the problem with Azerbaijan and Turkey being aggressors against Armenia. In the 100-year anniversary of the genocide, even though the Biden administration acknowledges the genocide, we give $100 million in new aid to Azerbaijan without requiring them not to um, invade Armenia. So whether it's the Egyptian laws or it's what's happening in Afghanistan or other Muslim countries, Pakistan, as you, as you mentioned, without the United States forcefully and um, very clearly articulating that it is at the, at, the, at the forefront of our policy, these aggressive Islamic nations will continue to persecute uh, Christians, whether they've converted or they're indigenous Christians, if we don't stand up for those rights. Okay, I'm sorry we're out of time. Hedja Miramadi, thank you for sharing your time and insights with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Orphanage trafficking, recruiting children into residential care institutions for the purpose of profit and exploitation. It's happening around the world and little is being done to stop it. 10 million children worldwide are modern day slaves, abused sexually or are being used for forced labor. Well, joining us to explain what is happening and what can be done about it is Ellie Oswald. Ms. Oswald is the executive director of Faith to Action Initiative. Ellie, thanks for joining us. So a new report from Lumos reveals that more than 5 million kids in orphanages around the world are in danger of being exploited to secure charitable donations. Tell us more about that. Yeah, we do know more than five children um, around the world, five million children are living in orphanages and therefore they are, have either been victims or at risk of being victims of what Lumos calls institution-related trafficking. And that's really four different things. One is children being recruited into institutions, what we would call orphanages or children's homes. Um, and this is really called orphanage trafficking. And um, often it's families out in the country um, who are convinced by really recruiters that um, they should turn their children over to the orphanage um, for a better life. And we know that's not really what those children are receiving. Instead, they're being exploited for funding and support um, that doesn't go directly to those children. I um, mean, and, and the, 
the second way that trafficking is really interlaced with orphanages is traffickers target children in orphanages and 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 can and find ways to get those children into other exploitive environments whether that is child labor or sexual exploitation this report also highlights what we know is true that when young people come out of orphanages when they age out you know at 18 years old they're at much higher risk of ending up in exploitive um, situations on the streets and otherwise um, and finally the report highlights how when Victims of trafficking are brought out or rescued out of their situation. They're often taken to orphanages, and um, we know uh, that this isn't the best place for them. It's not a place that can provide the stability that they need coming from a really vulnerable place. So the report really highlights a messy kind of interlacing between orphanages and trafficking that I think it's important that we all um, learn about. And I must point out that many orphanages are good. Christian groups are helping to provide for children that otherwise would go without food, a decent education, keep them secure from the streets and exploitation. But then there are others. I understand in countries like Cambodia and Uganda, some orphanages are placed specifically in tourist hotspots. Why is that? Tell us about that. Exactly. I think we need to think about how the direction of funding for orphaned and vulnerable children plays a really significant role in creating an environment where, where orphanage trafficking can happen. You know, billions of dollars are sent to orphanages every year. We just uh, worked with the Barna Group on a study that found that $2.5 billion every year are sent from U.S. Christian individuals to some sort of residential care, whether that is an orphanage, children's home, group homes. So, wow, that's incredible. $2.5 billion dollars you know at first glance the generosity is just overwhelming but then when you think about it a little bit you realize that's a lot of money <laughs> and um, in some ways it's created a bit of an industry and um, unfortunately if this is an industry children become the commodity. And so when we see motivation around financial gain when it comes to children developing countries poor countries um, have an incentive to keep orphanages um, because orphanages equal money. And um, that limits our ability to pursue what's really best for kids. And there are other, op there are other options for most of these children around the world. Well, let, let's talk about what can be done then about this. How can Christian groups and individuals that are helping overseas orphanages, and I guess even some right here in the USA, uh, be assured that their support isn't going to enable child exploitation? What can be done? Yeah, you know, there's a growing movement that's recognizing the the value of family and really pursuing other options for these children. Um, and so there's there's an achievable alternative that puts children at much less risk, and that's what we call family care. <laughs> and the best way ultimately to meet the needs of vulnerable children is to strengthen the capacity of their families to care well for them. You know, so that means identifying vulnerable families and making sure that they're well equipped to care for their children. That's something that the local church is so well equipped to do. The second is directing our resources so that our funding, our mission trips and volunteering, even government services are, are targeted targeting vulnerable families, and then supporting alternative family options like foster care and adoption in these countries so that every child has the opportunity to be raised in a place where, where they can find their identity and their belonging and their safety. Um, and we see organizations working all over the world towards this new vision of how we care for orphaned children. Um, and there's a lot of wonderful things happening across the world.
Okay, what a concept, raising the standard of living for some of these impoverished families. I know in Afghanistan they're uh, selling their children right now because they're hungry. Ellie Oswald, Executive Director of Faith to Action Initiative. Thank you, Ellie, for sharing your time and insights. Thank you so much. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. While the U.S. Supreme Court heard constitutional arguments against the Biden administration's vaccine mandates, a friend of the court brief filed by another group provided the court with scientific reasons to strike down the president's order. Well, joining us to explain is Phil Kirpin. He's president of American Commitment Foundation. Okay, Phil, it's interesting because I know your group filed an amicus brief, not based on the constitutional merits of the vaccine mandates, but based on science. What did you share with the court? Please explain. Well, there's an Alice in Wonderland quality to the court uh, debating vaccine mandates when the vaccine that they want to mandate was designed for a virus from two years ago that no longer exists, and the vaccine is extremely ineffective against the Omicron virus that's now everywhere, which is obvious from the fact that the places with the highest vaccination rates have everyone coming down with the thing. And in fact, two of the lawyers had to phone in uh, to the Supreme Court. One of them who was triple vaccinated had to phone in because he himself has COVID at the moment. And uh, the other part of our brief is that the Omicron uh, variant, which is now totally dominant, is much less severe than the previous variants, uh, much more akin to a typical respiratory virus, and therefore doesn't present a grave danger. So we wanted to update the justices on what's actually happening right now in the world, uh, which we think completely negates the logic of these vaccine mandates. Well, it seems the court needed that, especially uh, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, but what if a new variant comes along, Phil, one that may be worse than the Omicron? What then? Well, I think that's unlikely. Typically, viruses evolve in the direction of uh, lower virulence and greater transmissibility, which is certainly what we're seeing right now with Omicron. And I also think part of the good news story here, which we also mentioned in our brief, is that Omicron infections are highly protective against Delta and likely would be highly protective against any other uh, COVID-2 infections. And so the massive numbers of infections that we're seeing right now could actually be a really good news story if future variants do arise, uh, because they likely will mean very high levels of population immunity and protection against those future variants. Obviously, um, if the factual circumstances change, then we'd be having slightly different arguments about policy. But, you know, a brand new virus with totally different properties could also arise tomorrow. And so that's a very hypothetical. I think we need to be focused on what's actually happening right now and give up on policies that were, you know, predicated on a very different virus that's not around anymore. And I've got to ask you about the argument that the president is actually uh, unconstitutionally creating legislation with these mandates and that OSHA does not have the authority to issue non-occupational directives, orders that affect uh, safety beyond the workplace. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a very strong argument, especially when you have the White House chief of staff essentially admitting that this was a workaround to impose a national vaccine mandate uh, using sort of whatever authorities they could grab off the shelf and twist to that purpose. And uh, I think that that's the most likely grounds that we'll see a Supreme Court decision on, what they call their major questions doctrine, which is the idea that if Congress wants an agency to do something, they don't hide that desire in some 50-year-old statute with some obscure provision. They make it very clear and they do it uh, very directly. And I, I think that's uh, a, certainly a true argument and a compelling one. But I also think, and I think, you know, I also thought it was important 
that that analysis take place in a context where the court is not overly panicked or misinterpreting or misperceiving what's happening right now with the virus and with the science. And so, yeah, I think, you know, even if the virus hadn't changed and the vaccine were highly effective and the virus were more dangerous, I would still be against these mandates on legal and constitutional grounds. But I just think, I don't even think the court needs to get that far uh, based just on the circumstances, the way they've changed. Yeah, so, I mean, years ago, Howard Phillips always told me, uh, follow the money, and uh, this one is follow the science. And the vaccine administrative and paid time off cost to many businesses would be unsustainable. Just for the average uh, merchandise store, I understand it would be about a quarter of a million dollars. Add that to the store's operating costs. So wouldn't they just pass that cost on by raising their prices? It seems like this could result in government-mandated hyperinflation. Yeah, no question, especially if businesses do opt for the testing and masking option. There's a major ongoing operational cost associated with that that would get passed on. But I think the biggest economic disruption here comes from attrition from employees who, you know, employees who have declined the virus to this point probably had pretty strong reasons for doing so, either religious or medical or just personal beliefs. And a lot of them, if told they're going to they're going to be fired if they don't take the vaccine, will say, OK, I quit. And so employers will face a loss of a lot of mission-critical employees at a time where we have a very tight labor market. They're not going to be able to replace those people. And so I think the biggest economic impact of this is going to be exacerbating the labor shortage, uh, which is really going to hamstring our economy. Well, we're already seeing the effect of some of that on police forces, fire, nurses, and hospitals. Uh, no wonder hospitals are overwhelmed. A lot of people changing jobs and staying home. So Phil Kirpin, thank you for being with us. We appreciate your insights. My pleasure. The political rhetoric is flying in Washington as President Biden and congressional Democrats try to convince Americans they need new voting rights legislation. Their proposal would grant the federal government more power over states and radically transform the way Americans vote. Charlene Aaron explains. Pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Pass it now. A fired-up President Biden was in Georgia Tuesday pushing for voting reform, going so far as to call for a change in the Senate rules regarding the filibuster. I believe the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. The president maintains the Voting Rights Act is necessary to counter changes in voting rules in 19 states, including Georgia, that Democrats contend restrict access to minority voters. Republicans say the federal bill aims to create nationalized elections by requiring uniform rules for all states. The bill has no chance of getting the 60 votes needed to overcome a GOP filibuster in the evenly divided Senate. That's why the president says he'll support a one-time change in the filibuster rule. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says that will break the Senate. The Senate Democratic leader is trying to bully his own members into breaking their word, breaking the Senate. However, some Senate Democrats aren't ready to back the plan. West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Cinema not on board. We need some good rule changes to make the place work better, but to get rid of the filibuster doesn't make it work better. Meanwhile, a controversial law allowing non-citizens to vote went into effect in New York City this week. 
While it doesn't apply to state and national elections, the Democrat City Council and Democrat Mayor support the law, giving 800,000 non-citizens the right to cast ballots in local elections. Charlene Aaron, CBN News. Folks, non-citizens should not be allowed to vote. We need less foreign influence in our elections and government, not more. And why do Americans even need a new Voting Rights Act? The Voting Rights Act of 1965 already prohibits racial discrimination in voting. If there are violations, voters can take those violators to court. Those pushing this proposed law say too many states are suppressing the vote. Okay, so just as Donald Trump's opponents have demanded that he show hard evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election, let's demand that President Biden and others prove there's been massive voter suppression. It's a myth. Did you know that it's now actually easier for Americans to vote? 34 states and the District of Columbia allow no-excuse absentee voting by mail. Eight states now allow all their elections to be held exclusively by mail. But mail-in balloting actually increases the risk of fraud. We showed you some evidence last year, like people illegally emptying mailboxes filled with mail-in ballots. And then there's the argument that the voter ID requirement makes it harder for people to vote. Really? Doesn't it actually safeguard our elections by requiring proof that the person voting is actually the person who registered? In most states, they'll give you a free ID if you cannot afford one. You just have to make the effort to go and get it. Folks, this all is political theater and demagoguery designed to give the federal government and Democrats greater and continuous control over our voting system and lives. And threatening to end the Senate filibuster? Well, think twice, Mr. President. What goes around comes around. When Republicans win the majority in Congress, which is probable in the next election, they'll use it against Democrats. So no, Mr. President, America doesn't need new voting rights legislation. What we do need are term limits to get rid of professional politicians who enrich themselves and gain more control by forcing their dumb ideas on the American public. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRV channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.